0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode in our series of commercial litigation update podcasts. I'm Maura McIntosh and I'm a professional support consultant in the disputes team in London and today I'm joined by Julian Copeman who is a partner in the disputes team. Hello everyone. And also by Gary Horlock who's a senior associate in the team. Hello. So in this edition we're going to look at developments in a range of areas including environmental litigation, privilege, data class actions, claims against cryptocurrency exchanges and force majeure, so a rather packed agenda. And at the risk of hogging the limelight, I'm going to start off with environmental litigation and the recent failed attempt by Client Earth to bring a derivative action against Shell's directors, essentially to try to force them to move more quickly towards achieving net zero targets or at least I should say it's failed so far as the decision will be reconsidered at an oral hearing since Client Earth has reportedly exercised its right to request such a hearing. So this may not be the last word, but as things currently stand, the action can't go ahead. Now, as most listeners will know, a derivative action is where a group of shareholders seek to bring a claim on behalf of the company and for the company's benefit, uh, typically with a view to challenging the conduct or decisions of those in control of the company. Um, It's subject to a permission stage to weed out unmeritorious claims. And in this case, the court refused permission at the the very first hurdle, finding that there was no prima facie case to grant permission. The court was critical of client for seeking to impose specific obligations on Shell's directors in a way that cut across their general duty as directors to act in the way that consider in good faith would be most likely to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its members. Um, uh, The court really emphasised that, as has always been the law, it's for the directors themselves and not the court to weigh competing considerations in deciding how best to promote the success of the company. And that includes the impact of the decision on the community and the environment. Uh, Overall, I think the decision suggests that it's likely to be difficult for environmental or other campaign groups to challenge directors' long-term strategy and decision-making by bringing a a derivative action, since it suggests the court will not generally second-guess the director's commercial decisions or the weighing of competing factors in in reaching those decisions, unless perhaps a decision is so unreasonable that it falls outside the range of reasonably available decisions, but then obviously that's going to be a high hurdle. The decision is also interesting in providing some insight into how the court will assess whether an applicant um, in the derivative derivative action case is acting in good faith in seeking to bring the claim, uh, which is one of the factors that the court needs to consider in its exercise of discretion as to whether to grant permission if a prima facie case is established. And in particular, the decision suggests that the court will look at the motivation behind the action uh, and will be unlikely to grant permission if it takes the view that the action is being pursued for an ulterior motive. So in this case in particular, where Client Earth is an environmental charity which owns only 27 shares in Shell, the court thought it was reasonable to infer that it was bringing the case to advance its own policy agenda rather than for the purpose of benefiting the company, which is supposed to be the purpose of a, a, a derivative action. So that was uh, another problem in, in the way of the case.
1: Yes, and another problem with the claim, uh, as I understand it, more, is that the court won't grant a mandatory injunction. that's vague and will require constant supervi- supervision you know, with the parties having to come back to court whenever there's, there's a dispute about what the order requires. It, it won't make an order that it has to constantly police and I think that's likely to be a problem any time a campaign group is seeking to force a company to change its overall or long term strategy rather than taking specific defined action.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that was certainly a, a difficulty in this case. And I think it's, as you say, likely to be another hurdle for for similar sorts of claims. Um, before leaving the topic of environmental litigation, just a mention of the recent Supreme Court decision in another case involving Shell, uh, this time relating to an oil spill off the coast of Nigeria in 2011. Um, The claimants in that case, the Jala and Shell case, are Nigerian residents who allege that the oil spill affected their land so that Shell's liable in private nuisance. Um, The claims faced certain limitation issues and To address those, the claimants argued that there was a continuing nuisance, so that the cause of action, and therefore the limitation period, is renewed from day to day. But the Supreme Court has dismissed that argument. It it held that there is no continuing nuisance simply because a polluting substance, such as oil on the assumed facts in this case, uh, continues to be present on a claimant's land. There has to be some repeated activity or ongoing state of affairs for which the defendant is responsible, which is outside the claimant's land and which causes a continuing interference with the use and enjoyment of the land. Um, Now, I think many environmental claims may involve a continuing nuisance in that sense. For example, if there are smoke or chemicals or odours from an industrial site where the, the site continues to operate, But the decision shows that claims based on a a single one-off event will not amount to uh, a continuing nuisance, even if the impact of the event on the claimant's land has not been rectified. And and I should say, even if the tort of private nuisance can be committed by a single one-off event of that sort, which was assumed for the purposes of this appeal, but was not decided. So that's it for environmental litigation. Um, turning now to privilege. Uh, Julian, I think you're going to tell us about the High Court's decision in al-Saddak and Deckert. to start off with.
1: Yes, thanks, Maura. Uh, so the context is that Deckert were engaged by a government entity in Ras al Khaimah in the UAE to conduct an investigation into alleged fraud and misappropriation of public assets in the Ras al Khaimah Investment Authority. The investigation led to a senior executive for Mr Al-Sadek being convicted of fraud and sentenced to imprisonment. Mr Al-Sadek brought a claim in the High Court against Deckert and some of its former partners, alleging some pretty serious wrongs in the course of the investigation. Essentially, he alleges that the firm was involved in a politically motivated wrongful conviction, including his alleged abduction from Dubai, unlawful detention and torture. The recent decision in question was on the claimant's challenge to the defendant's claims to privilege over various documents. The challenge was brought on a number of grounds, but the two I think are particularly interesting are, first of all, um, a challenge that the the legal advice privilege didn't apply in relation to the firm's investigatory work, essentially because it was said the firm was just gathering factual information rather than providing legal advice. And secondly, uh, a claim that the litigation privilege didn't apply because the firm's clients hadn't been party to the relevant uh, litigation. Uh, the High Court rejected both of those arguments. and, and just um, dealing with them both on the legal advice privilege point. Um, the judge said it was clear on the evidence uh, that Decker was engaged to advise and assist in their capacity as lawyers, including as lawyers experienced in conducting investigations, on a cross-border basis in relation to alleged fraudulent activity. And so the work was undertaken in a relevant legal context and therefore legal advice privilege was engaged. The judge said that the claimants evidence appeared to be based on an unrealistic and artificial distinction between investigatory work and legal advice and assistance. Uh, He commented that unless there's strong evidence to the contrary, where lawyers are engaged to conduct an investigation It is a reasonable and fair assumption that the engagement encompasses the investigatory work and related legal advice and assistance as part of a continuum of legal service. So um, uh, that from the point of view of clients engaging lawyers to carry out that work, it's obviously a a sensible and helpful uh, conclusion and very much in line with the conclusions uh, of the House of Lords uh, some 20 years ago in, in Three Rivers. On litigation privilege. Uh, contrary to another high court decision from 2018 the court found that litigation privilege is not restricted to the parties to litigation but can in some circumstances be asserted by non-parties such as victims of alleged crime the judge basically said it's not surprising that most cases focus on the parties to litigation because usually someone who's not a party won't have sufficient interest to want to seek legal advice about the litigation And therefore won't need information from third parties to enable the lawyers to advise. But where a non-party does have that interest, the court could see no reason why litigation privilege uh, should apply.
0: Thanks, Julian. Uh, Yeah, I thought that case was very helpful on the litigation privilege point particularly. Uh, just, just to be clear, I think the court said that there's no particular threshold of sufficient interest that the non-party has to meet to be entitled to assert litigation privileges. It's, it's just a factual point that unless someone has some sort of interest, uh, they probably won't be seeking advice and needing the protection of privilege in relation to litigation. Is, is, is that right?
1: Yes, exactly that.
0: Thank you. Um, and I think you wanted to mention another privilege case, uh, the Taylor and Evans decision.
1: Yes, thank you. Uh, so that case um, addresses the rather vexed question of whether an employer is entitled to use an employee's privileged material where that material is found on the employer's systems or a device belonging to the employer. In this case, it was a work laptop that was handed over to the employer in the context of an investigation. The question in these circumstances, as in other cases where privileged material is received by a third party, Is whether the material remains confidential against the employer, in which case the employee is entitled to assert assert their privilege and the employer can't use the material. This in turn depends on whether a reasonable person in the employer's position would realise that the information was communicated in confidence. In in this case, uh, the court held that it should have been clear to the employer that the information remained confidential. The circumstances of the case are actually pretty extreme because it was very clear from emails disclosed by the employer that it realised the laptop contained the employee's personal emails because her iCloud account had been synced with her Outlook account and, and they also realised that the employee mistakenly believed that the link had been broken so that the personal emails weren't available on the laptop so essentially it would be unfair on her if the employer could use the emails in full knowledge that she thought they'd been removed before the laptop was handed over. The decision contrasts with a 2017 High Court decision in a case called Sipkin and Barclay Group, where the court held an employee's documents were not privileged against his former employer because he had no expectation or no reasonable expectation of privacy in relation to material he had created and stored on the employer's IT systems, including because of the employer's IT policy. So quite where the line will be drawn in any given case will depend on all the circumstances, which may make the results difficult to predict.
0: Thanks for that. Yeah, This seems to be an issue that comes up increasingly, I guess, because people are increasingly blurring the lines between work and, and personal life and how they uh, c- communicate in, in, in each context. So I guess the shame there isn't um, clearer guidance from the courts, but, but but I guess that's where we are. Finally, then, just before I bring Gary in, uh, there was a, a rather significant decision last Friday in a data class actions case. Can you uh, tell us what that was about?
1: Yes. So this case um, is called Prismal and Google, uh, and it's one where the court struck out an attempt to bring a claim for misuse of private information as an opt out representative action under CPR 19. The claim related to the transfer of some medical data outside the NHS, ultimately for the development of an app to identify patients suffering acute kidney injury. But at an early stage when the data was transferred and stored, it was envisaged that the data might be used for broader purposes going beyond direct patient care. As most listeners will know, a representative action can only be brought if the representative class all has the same interest in the claim. And in its high profile decision in Lloyd and Google, The Supreme Court found that a claim based on data protection legislation could not get around this hurdle by disclaiming any reliance on class members, individual circumstances such as um, uh, such claims require proof of damage and it's not enough uh, to to seek to claim for mere loss of control of data. Now, following that decision, there was a view that a claim framed in the tort of misuse of private information might be a better bet for trying to bring a representative action because damages for that tort can be awarded for the loss of control of data. However, uh, this decision last week shows that uh, if that's going to work, the claimant will have to be able to establish that, even based on the lowest common denominator of the claimant class, all of the claimants would have a viable claim that is not merely trivial. And that's likely to be difficult, unless perhaps the data in question is very sensitive and the interference was extreme. Here, there was a range, a huge range of individual circumstances, which meant that at least some of the data would be pretty anodyne. And so it couldn't be said that all the claims were viable and non-trivial. Now, I I think it's interesting to compare uh, last week's decision to a recent High Court decision uh, in Commission, Recovery Limited and Marks and Clarks uh, LLP uh, that we discussed previously uh, in this podcast. In that case, a claim for a secret permission was allowed to proceed as a representative action, despite the fact that there were potentially significant differences between the claimant's individual circumstances. In my view, it's not easy to reconcile that decision with this case, or indeed with Lloyd and Google, which clearly start from the premise that a need to take account of individual circumstances will be inconsistent with the same interest requirement. Now, the Marks and Clark case is subject to a pending application for permission to appeal. And of course, we'll have to see if this decision is appealed and what happens thereafter. So there may be more news on this uh, in future episodes.
0: Thanks, Julian. Um, So, Gary, thank you for uh, waiting patiently. Um, I I think you're going to tell us about a recent case where the court discharged an interim injunction against the cryptocurrency exchange, Binance.
2: Yes, that's right. And in the interest of full disclosure, I should say that HSF acted for Binance in this case. So it involves an alleged cryptocurrency fraud, whereby the claimant, who was an individual, was induced to transfer USD Tether, a form of cryptocurrency, to blockchain addresses provided by the alleged fraudsters, as well as transferring some cash to nominated bank accounts. The claimant's case was that the cryptocurrency could be traced to certain deposit addresses on the Binance cryptocurrency exchange, and that wasn't disputed for the purposes of this application. In this context a deposit address means a blockchain address which is linked to a user's Binance account. When cryptocurrency is received into the deposit address Binance then credits the user's Binance account with a corresponding value of cryptocurrency and the cryptocurrency that was transferred into the deposit address is then periodically swept into a central pooled fund that is owned and controlled by Binance itself. At a without notice hearing, the claimant obtained proprietary injunctions against various parties, including the alleged fraudsters, but is the injunction ordered against Binance that's of interest for our purposes. That injunction required Binance to preserve the claimant's USD tether which it was alleged to have received and to preserve the traceable proceeds of that USD tether. Finance applied to set aside the injunction on various grounds and that application succeeded. Particular points that come out of the decision include the need for victims of crypto fraud and their legal advisors to think carefully about whether it would be sufficient to obtain an injunction against the owner of the crypto account, which it alleges the assets can be traced, and to serve that injunction on the exchange as a third party, rather than naming the exchange as a respondent to the injunction application which was what was done here. If an injunction is sought against the exchange itself, and is later discharged on the basis that it was inappropriate, the claimant may be left with a significant adverse costs order. If a claimant does seek an injunction against the cryptocurrency exchange itself, the decision makes it clear that the applicant should be careful to distinguish the position of the exchange from the position of other potential defendants, such as the alleged fraudsters. Particular consideration should be given, for example, to whether it's appropriate to proceed without notice against the exchange. The need to comply with the duty of full and franken disclosure, and in particular, drawing potential defences clearly to the court's attention. And also the need to consider whether damages would be an adequate remedy, and if they would, an injunction should not be granted. Another crucial question is whether there are in fact any identifiable assets that the exchange could be required to preserve. In this case, the assets had already been transferred to a pooled account where they, had been mi- where they had been mixed and dissipated. And in those circumstances, an injunction shouldn't have been granted because it simply could not be complied with in practice and would serve no useful purpose.
0: Thanks. Thanks for that, Gary. Um, Obviously, that's very topical as the courts continue to grapple with the novel points that arise in relation to crypto assets and, and, and how familiar legal principles should be applied in this um, less familiar context. Um, I think in the final few minutes, you want to talk about a recent decision on force majeure, the uh, PDT Sport and p and case.
2: Yes. So this case involves a seaport operator who brought proceedings against a ferry operator for a shortfall payment that was due if the ferry operator failed to meet minimum import and export volumes as required under the relevant contract. The claimant, the port operator, applied for summary judgment. The defendant argued, amongst other things, that it could rely on a force majeure clause, which reduced the minimum volume threshold if a force majeure event affecting the claimant, i.e. the port operator, prevented the defendant from importing or exporting units out the port. The defendant argued that the COVID-19 pandemic and the need to adapt to post-Brexit transition arrangements had reduced customer orders and limited the number of units it could transport. And so this engaged the force majeure clause. The court found that the defendant had no real prospect of making good of the force majeure defence or otherwise defending the claim. And so it granted summary judgment. It was accepted that both COVID-19 and Brexit were capable of being force majeure events. In this case, COVID was expressly included in the definition in the clause. And while Brexit was not expressly included, the court was prepared to assume that it fell within the sweep-up provision for circumstances beyond a party's reasonable control and was therefore also a force majeure event. The problem for the defendant was that it had not adduced evidence to support its assertion That COVID-19 or Brexit had affected the claimant as the clause required. Essentially, the defendant just argued that the impact of these events was notorious and the court should take judicial notice of their impact and therefore infer that they had affected the claimant. But the court said that while it could take judicial notice of the fact that these events had, at times, had an impact on individual travel, it knew nothing about their effect on the operation of freight ports in 2021, And the available evidence suggested that there had been no significant impact. So really, the decision is a reminder that whether a force majeure clause is triggered will depend on a close analysis of the wording of the particular clause. And it won't necessarily be enough just to point to some potential force majeure event, such as COVID or Brexit, particularly where the clause requires specific conditions to be met, such as in this case, establishing that the clause affected the claimant.
0: Thank you, Gary uh, and and Julian as well. And to all of you for listening. Uh, That brings us to the end of today's podcast and we'll be back with another update in a couple of months. Thanks.